Hello, and welcome to Recovery 360, the podcast dedicated to exploring the pathways to treatment and recovery brought to you by Recovery Centers of America. I'm Lorraine Ballard-Morrill, Director of News and Community Affairs for iHeartMedia Philadelphia, and I am joined by Tony Luke Jr. Tony? Hello, Lorraine. Another show. This is amazing. Yes. Well, we are thrilled to be your guide on this journey towards better understanding the world of healing and the many ways individuals find their way to recovery. In every episode, we'll sit down with experts, survivors, and advocates in the field of treatment and recovery. We'll unravel the complexities of addiction, mental health, and physical wellness while shedding light on the diverse range of therapies, interventions, and approaches available. In this podcast, we're going to be taking a look at the range of treatments available, and there's a lot of those. There have been tremendous advances in the treatment of substance use disorder. In this edition, we'll be talking to experts about the latest treatment strategies. From Recovery Centers of America, we have Dr. Pete Vernick, VP of Clinical Services, and Brian Haney, VP of Outpatient Services. Substance use treatment options vary depending on the severity of the addiction, the specific substance being abused, and the individual's need and preference. We'll discuss some of the inpatient, outpatient, medication-assisted treatment, MAT, partial hospitalization programs, also known as PHP, intensive outpatient programs, IOP, lot of lot of uh, initials here, and general outpatient treatment, GOP, not to be confused with the political GOP. (laughs) So let's start with medical detox. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Tony, we love our uh, initials in healthcare. So I'm glad that we're doing this to kind of break it all down because I know how hard it is for people. You look at all of these options and it's tough to, to kind of break them out and see, you know, what, what would work for me. But when we talk about detox, and a lot of people are starting to call this withdrawal management uh, instead of detox. But what we're talking about is sort of that highest level of need where we have somebody who is withdrawing from the substance. And that means the process of the body removes Moving that substance and filtering the substance out and the effects of the substance starting to uh, be diminished. But as a result of that, there's sort of a rebound. So if you think about the high that somebody gets when they're on the substance, when that drug is withdrawn from the body, they go through a low. And oftentimes those are opposite symptoms to the high. So if somebody is really active and feels really good and euphoric and happy when they're high, when they go through withdrawal, it's the opposite of that. It can be feelings of depression and anxiety and physical pain in the body and feeling just like somebody wants to crawl out of their skin. And importantly, withdrawal can actually, for some substances, be physically dangerous. So the idea of withdrawal management or detox is medically managing that withdrawal period so that, number one, the person doesn't have to experience all of those symptoms. We're able to provide medication and support around those symptoms so that it isn't, you know, the old idea of cold turkey or, you know, you have to suffer to get through it. That's not the case. It's helping somebody to be safe and comfortable during that period of time, but also monitoring for safety. So, you know, a detoxification or withdrawal management program is going to be a 24-hour program with medical and nursing staff who are going to monitor the person for safety. If somebody gets into a situation where they have a physical reaction that's potentially dangerous, it's able to be treated, and the person's able to go through it more comfortably. So basically, this is, you know, anywhere from a, a few days to a week to get somebody through that initial period as safely and comfortably as possible so that they can get that start on their recovery. 
recovery. So that's that's what this level of care is really all about. You know, it's so interesting that you talk about it's not like cold turkey. And I think that we all have this certain uh, image in our minds of movies like Lady Sings the Blues with Billie Holiday wrapped up in, in one of those padded cells and going through this tremendous pain and agony. And you're sitting there watching this and you're thinking, I would never want to go through that. And I'm sure a lot of people who are in substance use disorder are also thinking that. They're thinking, oh, my gosh, if I go off this, I'm going to experience all of the things that we see in popular media that people go through when they go quote-unquote cold turkey. Definitely fear of withdrawal symptoms is one of the initial barriers, yeah, yeah, to to somebody getting into recovery is that fear that, you know, I don't want to go through that. And it's an awful, painful experience. So, you know, I can imagine that being such a barrier for folks. Brian, let's talk about some other options. Inpatient rehabilitation is good for some people, and for others, outpatient treatment is the best option. So I wonder if you could kind of break it down for us, the difference between the two, and what are the pluses and minuses? Sure. It all depends on the level of acuity that the individual is experiencing at the time. Inpatient levels of care tend to be 24 hours, round-the-clock levels of care that, as Dr. Vernig alluded to, often includes nursing support. Typical length of stay really varies. It could be from, on average, say, one month to really several months of care. Within that level of care, the individual is also receiving therapeutic supports in terms of attending group, individual therapy, and really just to stabilize that individual further if they admitted initially to detox. You can think of it as like a progression of care where you're stepping down from, say, detox level of care to inpatient and then ideally to outpatient levels of care. Well, there have been great strides in medicated-assistant treatment. Tell us how it works and the medications involved. In our next podcast, we're going to do a deep dive into MAT, but for now, give us some summary of MAT. So medication for addiction treatment is exactly what it sounds like. It's medication that's used to help to treat the symptoms of a substance use disorder. So as we've talked about a lot, there's such a physiological component, the effect that the drug or drugs have on the body. And MAT, sort of broadly speaking, is a group of drugs that, or a group of medications, because these are uh, prescription medications that are provided under the supervision of a licensed prescriber. They're a group of medications that will help to first of all, manage withdrawal, as we talked about, help on the longer term to reduce the cravings, the physiological desire for the drug that people experience and all of the psychological components that go along with that, and really help people to get in meaningful long-term recovery. So these can be things, a lot of times people think about things like methadone, which has been around for a very long time and certainly helps a large number of people, but there are many newer medications, things like buprenorphine, naltrexone, that can be a part of somebody's treatment. You know, it's the same idea that somebody doesn't have to go through the pain of withdrawal without support and, uh, you know, medical assistance. For many people, a barrier to uh, the next phase of recovery or that phase, you know, when somebody is in a residential program or in an outpatient program are the cravings that they'll get for the substance and, uh, you know, the effect that that substance had on their nervous system, on their brain, with their brain chemistry, you know, we're able to uh, give medication that's going to help them get through that as well. Now, there are some treatment options that are tailored to different levels of need, including partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient program, and general outpatient program. I wonder, Brian, if you could tell us the difference between them and how they address the needs of the patient. Sure. I think what makes this level of of service unique is that 
it allows the the individual to uh, still be a meaningful participant within their family and their community at large. When you're talking about partial hospitalization level of care, typically speaking, it's about six hours a day, five days a week. And within that model, the individual is participating in group therapy, individual therapy. And what's really unique about that is it allows the individual to utilize the skills that they're learning throughout the treatment day within the home environment or the community at large. And that's really the, should be the goal of any service provider is to allow the patient to generalize their skills in the environment that really where it matters most. It's, it's a less contrived setting, uh, less staff intensive, and really is setting that patient up for success. It looks a lot like an individual is going to work and, par- and participating throughout the day and really is setting them up for success to, again, reintegrate back into the workforce or to the community at large. I wonder if we can also talk about <clears throat> the demographics sure. of persons going into treatment. How does that, who they are and what they do, impact what might be the best choice for them regarding outpatient or inpatient? Yeah, great point. I, I think what we would want is really uh, some treatment is better than no treatment, right? And the outpatient level of care allows the patient to meaningfully participate within their community. And individuals can still be uh, meaningfully employed. Uh, it could be you could have child care constraints. And really, those circumstances could be a barrier to an individual seeking a higher level of care. And so really, the outpatient level of care allows the individual to still receive effective treatment towards their recovery and also allows them to still meaningfully participate in those uh, circumstances within their life. Well, behavioral therapy play a crucial role in substance use treatment, addressing the physiological and behavioral aspects of addiction. Cognitive behavioral therapy, again, CBT, uh, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, and the 12-step approach. Can you break down what each one entails? Sure. So CBT is something that a lot of people have heard of before. Cognitive behavior therapy. Like I said, we love our... our, uh abbreviations, but uh, CBT is an umbrella term for a large group of interventions. And what they have in common is they're focused on the way people think, the way they feel, and uh, the way that they act or their behavior, and most importantly, the interactions between those. So it's a very present moment focused treatment. I think people think a lot of time about getting therapy as, you know, I'm going to lay on the couch and talk a lot about my childhood. And there certainly is a place for that. And even within CBT, there may be a focus on things that happen to a person in their childhood. However, the focus in CBT is on what's going on in the moment. So what about my emotions is impacting the thoughts that I have? And what about the way I think is impacting how I feel? And how do these impact my behavior? Um, the example that I like to give most often for CBT is actually depression. So one of the things that happens with depression is oftentimes a lack of energy. So imagine if when you woke up in the morning, you just barely had the energy to get out of bed and the greatest struggle was just to get up onto your two feet and get out of bed. What kind of thoughts would you have related to that? Oh, I've absolutely been there. Mm-hmm. I think we all have at yeah. some point or another in our yeah. lives, for sure. Yeah. 
And so that causes a person to have, oftentimes will impact the way a person thinks negatively. And so, you know, what's, what's going on? What's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? And then that impacts the way that a person uh, feels. Because if I'm having negative thoughts about myself, if I'm telling myself that there's something wrong with me or that I'm making a mistake or I can't succeed, that's going to impact the way that we feel. And the way that we feel ultimately impacts our behavior. And so it's working on the relationship between those three things and uh, kind of finding ways of, you know, learning new skills, new ways of managing our emotions, new ways of thinking about how we think. So if when I have a negative thought, I can sort of catch that thought and be aware of the fact that, you know, oh, that's that's the depression talking or that's the substance use disorder talking and maybe change that, replace that with something more positive. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the core functions of cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. You know, I think what's interesting is that as we've talked about in, in other podcasts, really, we're talking about mental health, mm-hmm. that we really can't separate substance use disorder from people's mental wellness. So until we begin to look at the factors that are causing the, the behavior of self-medicating, right, then you really can't get to the next step. It's important for us to deal with that. Certainly CBT is, is one way to do that. There's also another set of initials, and that is DBT. Tell us about DBT. So dialectical behavior therapy is based on, uh, it's actually, it can, it's related to CBT. It's, it's a set of skills that's taught in a very organized way. Now you talked about self-medication and I think that's a really important piece that when somebody's self-medicating, as we've talked about a lot in here, how, you know, people have underlying depression or anxiety or trauma or, or other things going on and the drug is being used to manage that, what we're asking somebody to do is take that thing away, take that thing out of their life that is what they've found that helps them to manage how they're feeling. It's it's the only way they've found to manage their depression or to manage the struggles that they have in their family or to, to manage the experience of trauma that they have in their life. We have to give them something to replace that with. We can't take away a coping skill without giving something new. So uh, DBT is a set of skills, a very organized set of skills related to our interpersonal relationships, how we relate to our emotions, how we deal with stressors and problems that come up that do come up all the time in our lives. And it teaches people and, and helps people to practice these skills so that they're able to find something to, to replace that with. And obviously, you know, it sounds very easy the way that I explain it, and it's not very easy. It's, it's actually very difficult, and it takes a lot of work on the, the part of the individual. But if we can try 10 different things and one of those things works, that's a win. We have one skill that's going to to help the person or that they're they're comfortable trying in their life when they're experiencing, you know, those strong emotions or when they're having a craving. And, you know, again, that that integrated for some people with the medication for addiction treatment can be so helpful. Tony, I know that you and I have certainly heard about 12 step. 12 step program is something everyone is familiar with. But what actually is a 12 step program? Dr. Vernig? The 12-step approach is based upon, uh, well, as you said, 12 steps. So it is a progression of steps that a person goes through towards their recovery that involves joining a fellowship of others. I think that that's something we've talked about as well that's so important is that it's not something somebody does themselves. It involves a group of supportive individuals, people who, in the case of a 12-step program, generally have been through some of the same things. I mean, nobody's life looks like anybody else's, but they've experienced some of the similar 
struggles, some of the similar issues that they have. And working through those steps, there's active work, you know, similar to, to CBT and DBT, there's active work that they're doing in order to move forward in their life, looking at the way that their disease has impacted them, looking at the way it's impacted their family and their relationships, and ultimately bringing in the spiritual component as well. I think that that's one of the things that 12-step models or, or 12-step programs do so well that, you know, maybe it isn't a focus in CBT or is less of a focus in DBT, that it looks at uh, the person's spiritual wellness and the way that they relate to a higher power that can be spiritual or it can just be something outside of themselves that's important that they respect and that they believe in. So a 12-step approach, you know, it can be anything from a group that a person attends at a treatment program to 12-step meetings like AA or NA that exist, you know, they're all over the place in the community. That's one of the wonderful things about the 12-step approach is that it's available everywhere and that, you know, somebody who needs support, they can reach out in the moment and find that support to, uh, ready, willing, and able to help them through a difficult time. Right. And I like the idea of having like a mentor, a sponsor. Mm -hmm. They can just always be there for you when you need them. Okay, so I'm going to do it again. Do it. Go ahead. I'm, speak, I'm, your, speak your piece, I'm going to do it again. Okay. <laughs> I know many people where the 12-step program, and you know, has been life-changing. And I believe that what the 12 steps teaches is, is incredibly important. Taking responsibility, owning up to what you've done, asking for forgiveness, forgiving others as well. But there is a, a huge downside to the basic structure that bothers me. I'm, I'm trying to compare for our listeners to understand it so it doesn't get kind of technical. Let, let's go to food because everyone can relate to food, okay? So when you go to a popular food program, and I won't mention any names of the programs, okay? So they'll make your meal for you. You'll eat this meal. It has the amount of calories that you're supposed to use, okay? You're supposed to go to the gym. You're supposed to do these things, and you do them. But what happens is you can't, you can't survive the rest of your life doing that structure because it becomes about willpower. And willpower, no matter how strong you are, will break down, which is why people who lose 100 pounds, 150 pounds, or get their stomach stapled, or they do all of these things, and then, you know, they lose all of this weight, and then four years later, they're as big as they were, if not bigger, because you're relying on a group and a, a system that is so structured that if 